This is Rumble with Michael Moore, and I am Michael Moore. And my guest today uh, is Stephanie Kelton. And uh, Stephanie, um, you may have uh, heard of her, seen her, listened to her, read her. Um, she is a professor of uh, uh, economics and public policy at the State University of New York in Stony Brook, New York, and uh, fine school. I've spoken there. And um, I've asked her to come on today because uh, the, the um, well, the thing that's facing us right now is obviously we're in the, we're in the middle of a, of a huge calamity and um, and it has brought to the forefront so many issues about how we function as a society and um, the income inequality that exists. And so I know of Stephanie's work because in part, uh, in addition to um, uh, her teaching and her writing, she also has been an economics uh, advisor uh, to Senator Bernie Sanders' campaigns, both in uh, 2016 and in 2020. Uh, welcome uh, to Rumble. Thank you so much for having me. The uh, I kind of want to just jump right into this because the uh, the House passed a bill, a relief bill, um, about uh, nine or ten days ago, and I think everybody thought the Senate would just pick it up and then we'd have a, have something to help people. We can talk a little bit about the Democrats' bill in the House, um, which wasn't, in my opinion. Uh, everything it could have or should have been, but uh, we have gone another whole week with the Senate, not only holding this up, but Trump being involved uh, to not bring relief to people who've lost their jobs during this crisis uh, with the coronavirus, but to basically have another bailout, have another gift uh, to uh, uh, corporations that are, um, you know, taking a bit of a hit right now. So I just, uh, can we just jump in right there? Because tell me, tell us what the hell is going on with this bill or these bills? What is the Senate really up to? Uh, they're going to, the Senate is going to be in session again tomorrow, uh, which when people hear this, they they were going to be probably listening to this is Sunday already. So they are in session. Um, what? Yeah. And then they say they're going to take a vote on Monday. I just have this awful feeling that the people are getting screwed right now at the same time that they're having to worry about whether or not their loved ones are going to die in the next month. Help me out here. Well, yeah, you're I mean, you're absolutely right. You've got on the one hand, the, a sense of urgency that you're, you're at least hearing lawmakers talk as though they need to move something and move it quickly. Um, I, you know, the Democrats were early on talking about this would be bill number three that we're talking about. The Democrats were talking about 750 billion. And that was a number that uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren put out there Um Chuck Schumer said he liked that number. He thought it was a good number. Steve Mnuchin, the White House, there were number. you know, you started to hear 850 billion. And then somebody said that uh, Donald Trump likes round numbers. And so all of a sudden it became a trillion dollars. And all the while, while they decide which number they want to move forward with, um, people are losing their jobs. The wheels are coming off the economy. And now, you know, maybe we're looking at two trillion. That's the latest number to come out. 
Now, wait a minute. Wasn't wasn't the idea of this bill was to provide um, relief for people who have lost their jobs? Yeah. Uh, so they could get a, you know a, a good chunk, if not most, or maybe in in a, in a perfect world, all of the money that they've been living on. Because most people, most people, most working people, um, have a budget that they live on, and they are barely able to make it. They live from paycheck to paycheck. And if anything goes a little off in that equation, um, all of a sudden they're getting collection notices. Their credit rating is going down and somebody's threatening to take away the car or the house or the whatever. And, and then this just kind of spirals out of, out of control. If I, if I sound like I've been through this in the past, <laughs> that's, it's understandable because I know what, what I'm talking about because I'm, you know, I, I, um, you know, I was one of those, uh, people. So I know what this feels like and I know the panic that sets in. So, um, but it's no longer, I don't hear any talk about, about this. They're going to send a check to everybody for a thousand bucks or something. But, but that's, of course, that's just chump change. That's nothing. That's not going to fix anything. So, um, this, what started as Elizabeth's $750 billion idea. And I think if I remember most of her ideas, were uh, not about um, writing, you know, multi-billion-dollar checks to American corporations. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the Democrats that, and and I've spoken to some of them, you know, as they've been putting legislation together, and they really are singularly focused. Those, at least, that I've spoken with, uh, on trying to make sure that you know the money goes where it is most needed, and you already see K Street is salivating at the idea of a trillion or $2 trillion bill being pushed through really hastily. And they're already, you know, they're clamoring for their piece of the action here. So yeah, the Democrats understand exactly what you said, Michael. I mean, this is for many, many people for whom uh, the next paycheck is how they buy their groceries, is how they barely make their rent payment is how they make their student loan payment, whatever it is, exactly as you said, if something goes just a little bit wrong, they miss a payment and then there is fallout from that. And then it's just a cascading domino effect, right? Ripples through them as right. people begin missing a rent payment, missing a mortgage payment, missing a car payment, missing a student loan payment. So Democrats understand that this is the situation they're facing and that they that they need something very big, that they need a sizable piece of legislation and that they need to find ways to get the money to the people and to avoid to the extent possible having the third party, the lobbyists, K Street, strip this thing, pick it, pick it dry. Um, but it remains to be seen. You know, the, the signs now don't look very good. You've got the airlines asking for 50 billion you got the hotel industry asking for 150 billion of this. You got the restaurant industry saying they need 145 billion. The National Association of Manufacturers wants 1.4 trillion, and it just goes on and on. Oh, I know. I heard something. The casino industry wants 40 billion <laughs> because you know nobody can go to the casinos now. I mean, it just I, I've heard so many things that the McConnell and these guys are trying to cram into this to help out all their buddies, all the cronies. And, you know, it just makes me, I want to, I want you and I to, to meet at Penn station in an hour uh, so that we can get on the Amtrak Acela and get down to DC because th this is all going to happen in the next 24 hours. 
and and we the people are not going to have a say about this. I mean, in your perfect world, let's say it was a seven hundred and fifty billion dollar um, uh, bill that they were going to uh, pass. What should be ideally um, in that bill? Where ideally should this money uh, be going for right now, right now, and in the near future, so that we don't have um, you know, one tragedy upon another here. Yeah. Well, first, let me say 750 billion is way too small. You got to multiply that by at least three. Wow. Okay. So we are talking two trillion. Yeah, absolutely. This thing yep. should be at least two trillion dollars. We can see the the wave of what's coming ahead of us. And we don't want to be, you know, like we did after the financial crisis, trying to go back to the well after everybody's appetite for doing more has dried up. So um, we, we need to spend a lot of money. Look, I think that uh, states are on the front lines of this. Their budgets are absolutely going to get decimated like they did last time, but worse. And so taxes are going to fall off a cliff and spending, emergency spending is going to explode. So we have got to get money to state and local governments. I would do that on a per capita basis. I was running some of the numbers yesterday. I think if you did $2,000 per capita, you're looking at $600 billion in aid to state and local governments. I would do that. We need money uh, in the hands of working people. I mean, I said that the thing that I would do is try to keep workers on payroll. We don't want employers shedding workers because they can't afford to keep them on payroll. I would do Medicare for all, immediately lower the eligibility age to zero. Mm, yeah. And then I would help them keep their workers attached to their job on payroll. You know, I mean, I'll say it, nationalize payroll. Keep these workers paid at the wages and salaries that they've been receiving because like you said in the beginning, they're spending everything just to cover the bills every month. So they need half right. of their income replaced. They need to stay on payroll, keep attached to the job. And right now we're telling workers, your job is to stay home. So we have to make it possible for them to do that. Pay them to stay home. Right. If you're ordered, if you're ordered by your boss, because you've been, the boss has been ordered by the government to send you home. This isn't a choice you've made. You are home at the behest of the boss. So whenever you are working, whenever you're having to follow the orders of the boss, for every moment of that, you should be paid for it. Am I wrong? No, <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. And you know what? You're seeing countries already start to do this. The Scandinavian countries, uh, not surprisingly, I, I think are doing it in some of the most generous ways. But even the UK uh, in the last day or so has come out and said, listen, we're going to try to keep People on payroll. We're going to help employers replace eighty percent. Eighty. I know. I saw that Boris Johnson yeah. is proposing yes. this. The Trump of the UK, right? Wow. What is wrong with us? How do we? How do we let this stuff? So you're saying basically, send the money to the state and local governments, and they will do what with it? They will. They will distribute it in a way to make sure that people stay on the payroll. Yeah. I mean, you're hearing like in New York, you're hearing Governor Cuomo talk about doing things like telling factories, if you will make the ventilators we need, we will place the orders. If you will make the hospital gowns and the masks, and if you will do these things, we will place the orders. They're going to be commandeering, you know, beds at NYU and Stony Brook University. They're going to spend money to have places to put people. They're going to build places. They're going to take over stadiums and arenas. I mean, you know, these states are going to have to have a massive budget. 
They're turning the ja- the Javits Center, which okay. is the convention center in New York, into a thousand bed hospital. Yeah, that's I mean, wow. I mean, the state. I think the state and the city own that place, so it's um, it's amazing. Yeah, and they're obviously um, major employers, and we don't want to see you know workers right. laid off because the state's budget is hemorrhaging. Well, that keeps everybody working at the at the Javits Center, at the Stony Brooks, at the other the places that they're going to be using. So that's a that's obviously a good thing. I saw that press conference where he was literally, it almost sounded like he was begging. If there's anybody, any factory, any uh, company that will make these ventilators, we'll, we'll pay for the, 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 the assembly line changeover, whatever has to happen, whatever, whatever you need. It was just, what happened to the, what happened to back when my dad's, when World War II, where they didn't ask or beg, they just told General Motors, you will stop building cars today. Exactly. You will. You will start building tanks and planes tomorrow. And they did. That's exactly what they did. My grandmother went into the AC spark plug, which is part of General Motors in Flint. And uh, they went from making those little spark plugs to making machine guns. And just My grandma on the assembly line, there's just like machine guns <laughs> coming down the assembly line, you know, and it just... Somebody figured that out Yeah, absolutely. back you're, when they had a lot less technology than we have right. now. You're not making ladies' dresses any longer. You're making uniforms for soldiers. You're not making high shoes. You're right. making boots. You're exactly right. Meals ready to eat and all the rest of it. We're not acting like this is an emergency. So the number one thing we need is to keep people on payrolls, to keep income coming into people so that their lives do not unravel and fall apart uh, in these in these next months. So that's that's number one of the of the two two plus trillion that we're going to need. What's the what's the next thing we need uh, with with that money? Would that help? Well, if you've got people's incomes and you're making them whole in that regard, then I don't think you need to do as much on the other side, which some people are talking about in terms of, um, you know, a, a holiday on rent and mortgage or a holiday on taxes or something. People can afford to meet recurring expenses if you're replacing all of the income that they would have lost. So I think the the aid to states is huge. Seemed like the banks and the landlords would love that. You know, that would mean the banks would get their mortgages paid. The landlords, the rent would start coming in. You know, why, why wouldn't they be on board with this? It's because they're going to be the, the ones ending up with the money. You know, that's what happened. I mean, working, working people, they don't hoard their money. They spend it. And in spending it, that makes the rich rich. It also creates jobs for other people because if you're going to spend your money on the things that you need, food and clothes and et cetera, et cetera, you're putting other people to work. Yeah. I mean, I think that what most people are going to do if you if you can keep them whole is just those recurring expenses. We're not all going out. Nobody's taking a summer vacation this year. So we're putting off and there is going to be some pent up demand because, you know, if we have some of the income that we would have gone to the shopping mall and spent or we would have gone to the casino or wherever, you're going to hang on to a little bit. You might actually end up saving some money for the first time, many families uh, in a long time. But then as we get a, as we get control of this, as the we get control of the spread of the virus and at some point life returns to normal, you know, that's what everybody's hoping for is that we get this bounce back, this snap back in demand as consumers are able to leave the house and go back into the stores and the restaurants and the shopping malls and so forth. So it'd be a great thing 
if we protected people through this crisis so that they're actually in a position not loaded up with debt. That's the thing that worries me. A lot of people are saying that what we have to do now is provide loans to people to help them get through the crisis, bridge loans, low interest, no interest loans. The last thing in the world I want is to load people up with debt. Right. Right. And then we come out on the other end of it. You've got no job and you're loaded up with tens of thousands of dollars of debt. No, that's a, that's that's bad because we, we are going to come out of this virus. Uh, you know, sadly, we're going to lose a lot of people, but the virus doesn't live forever um, and and it will be done sometime. I mean, I'm going by, you know, what uh, uh, Zeke Emanuel and the others have, have said, the people connected to the NIH uh, Dr. Fauci, this could be a two year pandemic and it's going to have its peaks and its valleys. And then the valleys are when we're going to be able to come out of the house, um, and, and function semi-normally. And, and then it will come back in a few months. And then we've got to hunker down again. Uh, all of it, all of it trying to slow it down. Um, you know, and then perhaps we'll have a vaccine or whatever, but People need to sort of start wrapping their heads around this. This is not a two-week or a two-month ordeal we're going to be in the middle of. And and having said that, I don't know if 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 you believe those uh, the, the analyses that have been done, but um, they they seem pretty reputable to me. And if that's the case, Stephanie, what what is it? Um, how do we get through two years of this? Well. You know, I think that this is in, in a lot of ways, there is an opportunity in this, right, that we have the chance if we were strategic and if we made the right kinds of investments, we can come out of this with a stronger economy. Because, Michael, this isn't going to be the last time we face this. I mean, these viruses, you know, they come up. We've, I don't know how many uh, we've had in the last six, eight years, decade, whatever it is, but I'm pretty sure. Sure, I feel fairly certain this isn't going to be the last time. And what this has exposed, of course, is that, you know, we've got these vulnerabilities and weaknesses throughout our economy. Our social safety net is frayed and barely existent in many ways. We've, you know, our healthcare system, our trade policies, supply chain, it's it's showing us all of these ways in which our society and our economy is vulnerable. So if we were strategic about this going forward. And as we get through the crisis, we start doing things like, you know, we're not going to let all these industries fail. We're going to there are going to be rescues, bailouts, whatever you want to call it for the restaurant industry, for the airlines, for the hotel industry. But we have to make sure that when we come out on the other side, that those industries don't look like they did before and they don't behave the way they did before. Give me, give, give, yeah, give me some examples of what that would look like. What, what does that mean that they can't, on the other end of this, they can't be behaving and, and acting and, and functioning like they were before yeah, this? Yeah, you, you can put conditions on these loans. You can take an equity stake in the firm. You can say, you know, when you start rehiring workers, all of your workers need to be paid a living wage. You have to um, allow them to unionize. You have to have worker representation on boards. No buybacks. No buybacks. A period of years before you can pay dividends again. You have to come up with a plan to show that you're taking steps to get to net zero. I know. Yeah. You know, back back in uh, 2009, I was, was like begging uh, President Obama when he took over the auto industry, General Motors and Chrysler, um, to use this as an opportunity 
to come out on the other end of this with a different kind of transportation company that we need in the 21st century. And, and, you know, and I, I kept appealing to him. I mean, it sounded like I was out standing on the doorstep of the white house. I mean, I'm, I did my best. I'm not, I'm not personal friends uh, with him. So, but I went on TV and I made my voice heard that we could take this time now, now that you, you, Barack Obama and the federal government, you essentially own General Motors. You are the de facto CEO of this company. So we know that the internal combustion engine is killing the planet. We, we know that, um, that the car as we know it today will not exist at the end of this century. There's no way it will exist. So why not turn General Motors and Chrysler into 21st century transportation companies you know, you're, you're going to, you know, the, the government maybe shouldn't be in the business of building cars, but, but before you turn it back to them, do what you just said, have this, have this sort of the quid pro quo, if we can still use that term of, uh, we're going to help you out, but in return, here's what you're going to do. We're going to lower carbon emissions. We're going to have different kinds of transportation. We're, you know, uh, the, I read this, this week, the Chinese, the Chinese have like 2,700 bullet trains, uh, connecting 550 cities. We have zero bullet trains. We invented the train. We and the Brits, we, inv- we invented the train where General Motors turned the factories into building high-speed rail, build light rail, build all the different kinds of things that, you know, and of course they just gave back, Gen- they gave General Motors back the company and they're still building the same crappy crap cars that are killing the planet. And uh, actually they're building, I think the cars are a little better just to be honest, but um, but you know what I'm saying? What, like, you're right. This is the moment where we could fix so much of this. If we're going to give our money, our tax money to these companies, let's, let's ask for something in return. And I know maybe, maybe I went off the rails there. No, no pun intended, but, um, you know, it just seems like, um, that there's some silver lining here. If we set this up and do it right. I think so. I mean, I think. And, and, you know, we're looking at a situation now of you know, Goldman Sachs is warning of the possibility of seeing unemployment claims spike next week. You know, the last uh, round of claims, it was 281,000. They're saying, brace yourself for the possibility of 2.25 million people next week firing wow. for unemployment. Next so week. one of the wow. other things we could do, you know, I think FDR and I think of the second bill of economic rights and those are the kinds of safeguards and protections that if we had been able to follow through with that um, and have guarantee everyone a right to a job, a right to health care, a right to housing, a right to a secure retirement, a right to an education, just those securing those basic rights, right? So that when an event like this happens and millions and millions of people are thrown out of their jobs, that there's a place for them to transition to. And it is called public service employment. It is a federal job guarantee. And it's what Coretta Scott King fought for and Martin Luther King Jr. and FDR and on and on. And if we had something like that in place, we could take those people into the program today. We could begin today. Some of them would be idle because we don't currently have a place to put everyone. We don't want everyone out doing things. But when we begin to ramp up, some of them could be delivering, you know, meals to people who need meals. There's be helping. Mm-hmm. Um, so Matt, you're saying like like a public works program, like they did during the depression. Yeah, and we could we exactly uh, the, the WPA. 
Civilian Conservation Corps. Exactly. So when we're through this crisis, where it's funny to say it in a in a sense because we're already in a climate crisis. It's just that you know the the more immediate crisis in our face is the pandemic. But it isn't as if when the pandemic is under control, we're not still in a crisis. We are still in a crisis, and we have to begin to address that crisis. So what can we do in these twenty four hours before they? take this bill out to the floor uh, tomorrow. Um, it, it, what can people listen to this do? I mean, what? how can we have our voices heard? Why did Nancy Pelosi and, and the Democrats start with such a kind of a weak bill to begin with 12 days ago? Um, I mean, that's my read of it. Maybe you have no, a different read I'm of it. I'm afraid you know. I don't. Um, no, that was, uh, you know, to provide, un- expand unemployment insurance. But as we quickly discovered, um, the bill only covered about 20% of the workforce, you know, and this is the thing. The House actually has some leverage right now. They could have really dug in and gone for something ambitious and said, I dare you in this moment to, to you know, fight back and say that you're going you're, you're gonna to say that you're not going to pass the bill that puts the most money that we can put into the hands of the working people who are going to get hit the hardest by this challenge them, let them, but they didn't do that. So what do we do now? Because what they're, what, what they're going to do in the, in, within the 24 hours here, they're, they're going to give, I don't know, what is it? The last number I heard $200 billion to the airline in- industry who already got a big tax cut. Thanks to Trump who, and, and these companies that used it to, to do stock buybacks, which, which can you explain that to just the average person? Let's say this of how absolutely insane this so-called tax cut was supposed to, uh, they were supposed to use that money to do things that would create jobs and would help benefit the economy. Instead, what what happened? What did these companies do when Trump gave them their big their big tax cut? Well, ninety five percent of the corporate tax cut uh, windfall went to stock buybacks and mergers and acquisitions. Mm, wow, just ninety five percent. Yeah, ninety five percent. You know. None, none of this, oh, you're going to share. We heard a little bit early on about bonuses for workers and all that kind of stuff. No, 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 no. Those were some feel-good stories, and there were they were by far and away the exception to the rule. The overwhelming majority, virtually all of it, was used to buy back shares, to pump and, up the share price. So, And why do they do that? Why, why do they buy back shares of their own company? Well, because CEOs are rewarded uh, based on the price of their shares. Right. So it helps the, the price go up when they do this, when they do these buybacks. Right. So they're, yeah. They're pushing up the price of the shares and then CEOs get a reward in terms of their pay package because share prices are up. So isn't this also just to help them because the stock market has, has gone down so far that trillions of dollars of, you know, what they consider wealth um, because the companies, you know, the, the stock, the stock prices have gone down, down, down. And so they were living pretty high and enjoying this, what seemed to me to be kind of an inflated, uh, you know, fake um, sense of, wow, look at the boom we're in. And I mean, I don't know, again, I never took an economics class. So I'm, I just think from my own knowledge of history that when these crazy booms happen, crazy booms, uh, it's a sign that some something bad is about to go down here because it the the economy cannot sustain you know where we have been with things like the stock market 
Yeah, I mean, you want the value of the share to reflect economists or finance people would say underlying fundamentals, right? The general health and profitability of the company. But when you get in these kind of speculative euphorias where, you know, people are just plowing money into the stock market and price earning ratios, you know, double and triple and quadruple, uh, you start to get a sense that there's overvaluation, to put it in the most polite possible terms. If you were not polite, how would you put it? A speculative frenzy, overvalued, you know, a wild casino gambling frenzy. Thievery. In in some respects, yeah. Not exactly a you know an economist term, but in a sense, it's really what's going on, right? I mean, it's a it's a theft from the working people. The money is taken from them, and and making the wealthy even wealthier. Yeah, and you can see it. You can just see it in the data, you know, and you can see that break point. It happens right about the time of Ronald Reagan when workers, you know, sh- the ability of workers to share in the productivity gains mm. of the just part ways. Your workers' wages sort of flatline and worker productivity continues to climb. And the difference between the two is what's going to the, is what's going to the boss, what's going to the corporation. Okay, so the senators are there. They're there right now. That means the switchboard is open on Capitol Hill. Um, if people listen to this, if they want to call their senators today, what should they say to them about about this bill that's being considered, uh, this relief, so-called relief bill? Um, what, what is it that you want to encourage people to, to speak up, to go to the phones, to melt the switchboard today, uh, to let these senators know they're going to be in deep trouble um, if they, if this bill doesn't benefit the working people of this country. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, you, you want to let your representative know that you're watching, that you're aware that these major industries are going to get bailed out and that you don't want a blank check being handed over to these industries, that you want accountability, that these corporations have to be accountable. And we talked already about some of the kinds of things that Congress can do to put strings on um, on the money that they're handing out. They're going to hand out billions and billions and hundreds of billions of dollars. So um, you need to put them on notice that you are absolutely not going to accept uh, a giveaway, a bailout of these major industries on a no strings attached sort of basis. And even more importantly, that this bill needs to have as its central focus, the working people and families in this country. So they, the bottom line is that we have to do everything in our power to keep them whole financially. Through so the- we need, we need the U S Senate and the U S Congress to guarantee people's payroll. That's they, it. They've been ordered home by their government and by their bosses. That's, that's why they're, they're standing in place, uh, at home waiting to be called back and they need to be paid for this time. They're doing their job. They're doing their job. That's right. If you're on the plane and you're sitting on the runway at LaGuardia for two hours, cause you're just in a hold that, you know, the pilot's still getting paid. Everybody, the flight attendants are getting paid. Everybody's getting paid. You can't say, well, yeah, but the plane wasn't able to fly for two hours. So it doesn't matter. Everybody gets paid. We have to have this attitude right now today about the people who have been ordered home have to be paid because they've been told to go home 
and stand ready because when this virus, when we're able to get through this pandemic, uh, you're coming back to work. We need to guarantee that. That's number one. And the number two thing today is no bailouts without strings to these industries that have already been the recipient of an enormous tax cut. Do I have it right? Are those? I think those are the, that those are the two things that I think are front and center. They, they're, they're, they're the most important things. And to get money to states, get lots of money to states, to states and, and our territorial areas. Right? Okay, so let me, let me just take a second and remind people of the phone numbers that I always give out um, uh, of, of the Capitol Hill switchboard. Um, you could write this down. You could memorize it, but I'll post it on my platform here on the, on the podcast platform. Um, but let me give it to you right now, everybody. Uh, what Stephanie is just talking about here, what we need to do is we need to get on the phone to our senators. If you don't know their names, you just, when you call the switchboard, just tell them what state you're from and they'll connect you to one of the two senators. They'll still tell you who the two names are and you can say who you want to talk to first and then call back and talk to the other one. Uh, here's the number. You ready? 202-225-3121. I'll give it to you again. 202-225-3121. You may be put on hold for a bit because, you know, when I do this, it, it creates a lot of phone calls. That's okay. Stick with it. We've you've got to tell your senators. And don't say, oh, I've got a really liberal senator. I don't need to. Yeah, no, no, no. They need to hear your support. The, the, the Democrats who need to fight for these things, they they need your support. And if you have a Republican senator, they need to know that you're watching. I like the way that Stephanie put it. Uh, we're watching you. We're watching you. We know, we know exactly what you're up to. And we will not forget this. They need to hear that loud and clear right now. So when, you know, either you can put the podcast on pause and do it or wait till we're done here. Uh, because I wanna I wanna get into something else here, Stephanie, that, that you've been a big proponent of and I've loved reading about this. And um, it's called, um, if I got this right, a, a Modern Monetary Theory. Is this correct, MMT? Yes. Modern Monetary Theory. And rather than me trying to explain it, but I, I want people to hear this because here's a, here's a new, not so new, but new fresh idea um, that needs to be on the table. We all need to be discussing this because again, we have to find and figure out a different way to get from, from where we've been to the new place we're going to be after, after the pandemic. And I, and Stephanie, I just got to say, do you marvel at, at all the things that, um, that you or I, um, Bernie, others, Elizabeth have been fighting for, for so long have all of a sudden magically come into being here in in these last couple of weeks. All the things that they keep saying, oh, uh, we don't have the money for that. Well, all of a sudden they've got a ton of money or or they'll, 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 it's just, I mean, it's just a whole, I mean, everybody who's, if you paid attention to the news the last couple of weeks, you've heard them, you've heard the president himself say, uh, there's a moratorium on you having to pay your, your student loan debt. Whoo. What? Yeah, you're not, you know, you're not setting this up to actually say that maybe we shouldn't be doing this in the first place, right? There's a $1.5 trillion of student loan debt that's out there. And everybody knows that $1.5 trillion is not going to get paid back. Not entirely, not anywhere near entirely. So it's a, it's, it's the, 
you know, if the first shoe that dropped was with the housing situation back in 08, there are two other shoes that have been waiting to drop, even though we only have two feet. And that is the, the incredible student loan debt that this country carries and the credit card debt. Um, so they've been, so, so you don't have to do that. Uh, they've told the banks and bank of America came out yesterday and others are saying, uh, uh, don't worry about, we're furloughing the, uh, your mortgage payments. If you can't make it this month, next month, you know, don't worry about it. Nobody's getting kicked out of the house. Nobody's having their house foreclosed on. Um, I, I, uh, I saw one governor, they're releasing all the, the nonviolent criminals to reduce the overcrowding, which is really going to be a, a huge human Petri dish in these prisons uh, for this uh, pandemic. Uh, so they're, they're, they're releasing people that shouldn't be in prison, in my opinion, probably in the first place, drug offenders, nonviolent offenders. Um, what else? I mean, what are some of the other things I've seen? It's like, how about Medicare for all? We finally have it. We, we only have it. We only have one piece of it, which is they've said that uh, the testing isn't, is going to be free for the uh, coronavirus. Uh, testing will be free. Treatment will be free. Um, don't worry. Don't, don't worry about, you must come in. You must not go out and infect other people. We'll pay for this. And, and, and then they said, how are we going to pay it? Somebody said, we're just, we'll just make it part of Medicare. Oh my God. <laughs> it's like, so Medicare for all, when it comes to the, to the pandemic, it's a start. I'm just saying, if you notice this stuff, any, how many things where they've just, where it's, it's kind of like, it's like they've taken, they've taken some drugs and all of a sudden they're in Bernie land. Not only in terms of the policy, but the thing that, that they've also been doing, and you mentioned it is this whole pay for thing is completely out the window and it just really, the thing where they're always saying where, where, you know, they're at the debate and they're and the, and the moderator goes, well, how are you going to pay for that? Medicare for all or the climate, the new green deal. How are you going to pay for that? How are you going to pay? And it's kind of like, I, every time they ask that question, I always think, uh, well, what does it matter? How are you going to, you're going to pay for it. That's how you're going to pay for it because we're losing the planet. You know, you're going to, you're going to pay for it because it's wrong that, that, uh, 50, 60, 70,000 people a year die simply because they don't have the health insurance that they need. That's how you're going to pay for it. You're going to pay for it because you have to pay for it. Morally, you have to pay for it. You know, if, if you, if your child has been struck by a car and you go out and your child's alive and you scoop your child up and you, and you either waiting for the ambulance or you just put the child in the car to get to the hospital, you don't stop and think, Hey, whoa, wait a minute. What's this going to cost me? If I take this kid to the hospital, doesn't matter, does it? Well, there is a way in which it could matter. So if you were trying, if we were not in the midst of a pandemic and we had the old economy back and you said, well, you know, three and a half percent unemployment, you know, on the surface, this looks like a reasonably healthy ish economy. Obviously, it's not for roughly half the population. But leaving that aside, you say, okay. It doesn't look like there's a lot of slack in this economy. A lot of people that I could hire, a lot of room in the economy for the government to spend trillions of dollars, right, doing infrastructure or Green New Deal things or canceling student debt or whatever. You might say that you have to kind of curb your enthusiasm a little bit because in a full employment economy, resources become more scarce and the economy, you, you get 
to a situation where you are constrained in terms of how much you can safely spend into the economy without offsets. And that's what it means. When Washington talks about pay-fors, what they really mean is, how are you going to offset that spending? So if you want to cancel one point, it's really 1.7 trillion in student loan debt. Uh, if you want to do Medicare for all, if you want to do infrastructure, and you want to spend a couple of trillion dollars. The pay for question is about how you're going to offset that spending. So if you want to spend two trillion into the economy, you're supposed to demonstrate that you have a credible plan to rip two trillion dollars out of the economy in some other way, either by raising taxes or by carving money out of some other part of the budget so that you don't add to the deficit. That's what the pay for question is about. How are you going to do this in a way that's not going to add to the deficit. But here we are today. We are going to move legislation through. We've already done 100 billion plus, and we're going to do, it looks like, a couple of trillion. No offsets. And that means that in Washington speak, all of this spending that's about to get uh, moved through the House and Senate and signed by the president is, is going to be an instruction from Congress to go out and spend $2 trillion without offsets, which means they're going to, they're going to add to the deficit. Now, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. There's no way in this economy they should be trying to raise taxes to offset to keep the deficit from increasing. It's right to just spend the money. And we can do that now because obviously the wheels are coming off and you know there's, we're not going to create an inflation problem. The risk is that if you try to spend too much into an economy that is already reached or very close to its full employment capacity constraint, the punishment for spending more and more and more is inflation, but we're not in that situation today. So what we're getting is a, is a really good demonstration of how Congress can write and pass bills and fund uh, projects, fund spending without the need to raise taxes. So, okay, so, so when we hear this, because I think we've all been trained to hear when we hear deficit, it's going to increase the deficit. Oh, that's a bad thing, you know. Or it's, and and even to working person, when they hear that, oh, we're just going to borrow more money from the big banks, and my tax dollars are going to go to making interest payments to these large banks, and that is not why I'm going to work every day, so that I so that I am paying this money to the to the big banks. What do you say to people who have a very legitimate concern? Because they're led to believe that I think this is this is how the equation works. Yeah, it's so much to unpack what you just did because so much damage has been done to us, frankly. In I know, the I know. See if you can do it in 30 seconds. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> so we, we have been so poorly educated about these things. And it starts with the very moment that a politician says that we have to get our fiscal house in order. As soon as they say house. They're trying to get us to think of the federal government's budget the way we think of our own household budget. Mm. And we understand our own finances. You can't spend more than you take in. You can't take on more and more debt and expect to come out of that okay at the end. And so it's very easy for public officials to talk to us using language that we're already familiar with, our own personal finances, and to liken the federal government's budget to a household budget. And once they successfully do that, then you know, everything else follows. They turn us against deficit spending. They make us fearful about the national debt and so forth. And so I wrote a book 
to try to help people, you know, really inoculate them to these myths and misunderstandings about deficits. Because look, the Republicans in December of 2017 passed these huge tax cuts, right? And they blew up the deficit. They added almost $2 trillion to deficits over the course of 10 years because Mm. of the tax. They didn't do that because they think deficits are bad for people. They did that because they understand perfectly well that every deficit is good for someone because the government's deficit just means that the government is depositing more money into the economy. It's spending more in than it is taxing back out. So their deficits are our surpluses. Their red ink is our black ink. The question is, who's our? Who's, for whom are those deficits working? And in the case of the tax cuts, we know that 83% of the benefits went to people in the top 1% of the income distribution. Corporate tax cuts, of course, um, benefited big corporations. And we already talked about the buybacks and so forth. So they understand that deficits are a way to deliver a financial contribution, to make a financial contribution to some other part of the economy. They just want to steer it into the pockets of the people they're most interested in serving. So when Democrats have the opportunity, the last thing I want is to see Democrats start, you know, squawking and squealing about deficits and trying to reduce the size of deficits. Deficits are our surpluses. We just want to retool that deficit. We want to use it and deploy it in the interest of working people and families across this country, small businesses, and and not allow those deficits to be exploited almost exclusively for the people who least need the help. So in your modern monetary theory, um, and this is, you know, whenever you say theory, it's, you know, I'm, I'm always afraid of losing people um, uh, because it's, um, okay, I did take one economics class. I, I, I've had one year of college in me, and, uh, and I, I dropped out the second day of the, of the class um, because it was really way, it was just too much for my head uh, to wrap it around. I just couldn't do it. So, um, so but I, <laughs> as I grew up, I realized uh, the importance of paying some attention and becoming somewhat educated about this. So, but I, I was reading your, the theory um, and I just thought, wow, this is genius. This is, this just seems such a good idea. Why wouldn't people be in favor of it? Uh, can you just explain it, explain it in very basic language, uh, to people? I mean, the people listening to my podcast are not stupid. I mean, they will understand. Yeah, no, I, um, I, I sure can try. I mean, the, the basic idea is that we, the, the, as I said before, the federal government is not like a household. We have this idea that the federal government needs to find the money, needs to come up with revenue in order to spend. And that the way that they do that is by coming to us, right, the taxpayer. So they collect money by raising taxes or borrowing from China. And then once they have the dollars, then they're in a position to go out and spend. And what MMT does is say, hang on, wait a minute, we're getting this backwards. Households have to find money before they can spend. A business has to have money before it can spend. State and local governments have to have revenue in order to spend. But the federal government is fundamentally different. And the thing that makes it different is that the federal government, think of Uncle Sam, is the issuer of the dollar. The United States dollar comes from the U.S. government and it can't come from anywhere else. They are the issuer of our currency. 
And because they're the issuer, we could think of them as a monopolist, right? They have a monopoly on the creation of the U.S. dollar. If I try to do it, it's called counterfeiting. It's against the law. I can't do it. Only the federal government can issue the dollar. And if you get to that point where you understand that, then you understand that the government can never run out of its own currency. It can't go broke like Greece, which gave up its currency and started borrowing in what's effectively a foreign currency, the euro. And so countries like Argentina or Venezuela or Greece, you can get into real trouble when you start running deficits and borrowing and you have bills coming due, you have debt that's payable in a currency that you don't issue. But if you are the United States and your debt is denominated in U.S. dollars, you can always afford to pay whatever you owe, whether it's a bondholder, whether it's future Social Security recipients, whether it's wages, you can always make those payments. The constraint, and this is where MMT makes a really hard line and a big point, the constraint is inflation. It is not solvency. You can't go, you can't run out of your own currency. When sometimes we'll say the, the U.S. government is the scorekeeper for the dollar. So what you're seeing right now, what Congress is doing is it's about to instruct its bank, the Federal Reserve, to go out and change the numbers in people's accounts, whether it's going to be Boeing or Lockheed Martin or whomever, the the Congress is going to give instructions to its bank to carry out payments on its behalf, and the Federal Reserve is going to make those payments, and those payments are going to clear because that's the Fed's job, to clear payments that have been authorized by Congress. So we've gotten a bad education. We've been told that, you know, President Obama said in the middle of the Great Recession, he did an interview, he went on television and they said to him, at what point do we run out of money? And he said, well, we're out of money now. And I thought, oh, my goodness, (laughs) we're just we're just getting started. And there was that declaration that the U.S. government had basically run out of money. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, it just doesn't work. So that's why in that and in this crisis moment, that's why California can't deal financially with the fallout of this crisis. It's why New York can't. It's why only the federal government can step up and commit to spending money it does not have. And it's different because it's the issuer and the rest of us are just users of the U.S. dollar. Right. That's why that's the danger in thinking of the federal government as as you. Like they're all, they're just like us. That house, the house analogy that you gave. It's not going to run out of money. It can spend too much. It can authorize, Congress could authorize too much spending. And as we talked about, if we were in an economy, you know, it's like World War II, right? You ramp up to mobilize for the war effort and you're hiring everybody you can get your hands on and you got people working double and triple overtime and, you know, you drive the unemployment rate down to essentially non-existent and you got some inflationary pressures, but they managed it really effectively. And we got through the crisis and won the war and all that sort of stuff. So you can push spending too far. It's not MMT doesn't say, you know, there's there is no limit to spending. What we're saying is that we've been hewing to this artificial revenue constraint to thinking of the government like a household that it you know, needs to run its budget the way a household does and the balanced budgets are good and deficits are de facto evidence of, you know, fiscal malpractice. And they're they're just not. 
fiscal deficits are critically important um, most of the time in the economy, but especially now. You've been trying to bust a lot of these myths about uh, how our economy is run, how it works. And one of the things I read um, that you said, and I and I think I've been one of the people that have just believed this, that essentially China is our bank and, and that uh, uh, the, the Chinese um, own so much of this country or we are in debt so much to the Chinese, but, but you've written that, that again, we've been, we've been bamboozled here by our own politicians and, and, uh, and, uh, corporate America, whatever to, to, to be in, in this state. It's almost sounds like now a version of when Trump said, keeps calling this the Chinese virus. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an easy one to, it's an easy one to pull over on people, uh, because somewhere it seems to make sense. Can you explain this? Uh, you know, but the, the so the so-called China is our bank. China is China is really the owner of this country now. Yeah, yeah, and you're right. It plays into a lot of um, fear and anxiety of the other, and you know, uh, foreigners and all that kind of stuff it makes people anxious. So, think about <clears throat> why China holds about a trillion dollars in U.S. Treasuries, and Japan has about a trillion as well. And for a politician to stand up and say, you know, we're borrowing from China. Well, that makes us feel, that makes it sound like the U.S. is weak, you know, that it had to go Mm -hmm. to China tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But the reason that China has treasuries is because China has oriented its economy around producing, manufacturing lots of cheap stuff, putting it in containers, shipping it over here. And in exchange for those things that they manufacture and ship to us, we ship them. Well, we don't actually, we just credit a bank account, but we, they get dollars. So China ends up with, let's call it a checking account at the Federal Reserve. They get it with dollars in it. Now we give China the same option that we give anybody else who holds US dollars. And that option is you can trade your dollars in for US government bonds, treasuries. And so China has the option to keep its dollars in a checking account at the Fed or to move those dollars into what's effectively a savings account, a securities account at the Fed. And that means that they buy treasuries. So we debit their checking account and we credit their securities account. And that's what we call borrowing from China. Okay? It, there's nothing dangerous. It doesn't put us in a vulnerable position. China gets to hold their dollars in an interest-bearing account instead of a non-interest-bearing account. That's what we're doing. Do we have to do that? No. We don't have to sell bonds at all. There's no reason that the government, in fact, you know, I don't know if you saw this, but Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, did you happen to see the legislation? You know, I just, I just read this uh, just before we started this podcast. Uh, Can you explain this? Because it was so, I saw this online and I know Rashida, um, you know, we've been friends for a while in Detroit, you know, but um, why don't you explain this? Because this is, this is, the first thing I, I thought of too was you, because this is a this is something that you and and the other economists like you um, are are trying to get our heads thinking about money in a different way. Um, so this is a, her two trillion dollar. There's two coins, and each are worth a, tri- a trillion dollars. So I'll, I'll I'll turn it over to you. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't actually had an opportunity to read the bill, and I wasn't uh, responsible. I have somebody I know, Rowan Gray. 
uh, actually worked with her staff and, and drafted this. But so basically what she is saying is there is a way to create a balance uh, for the U.S. Treasury that they're checking account at the Federal Reserve. There's a way to top that account up. We can put $2 trillion in the Treasury's account from which they can spend to do things to help working people and so forth to get through this crisis. And we can do it without increasing the national debt. And I think, but I'm not positive, but I think the motivation is that after the financial crisis and through the Great Recession, when it became clear that you know deficits were exploding and people started to panic. And the reason they started to panic was that these deficits involve borrowing. And the borrowing meant increasing the national debt. And that makes people really, really nervous. And so I think what she's done is just to demonstrate that there is a way to create the spendable balances that the Treasury will need as it you know, uh, pays for whatever it's going to do to fight this uh, crisis without adding to the national debt. So here's her idea. She says, we're going to use uh, the U.S. Treasury is going to mint two coins. They're proof platinum. And a lawyer many years ago discovered a loophole in the law that would allow the Treasury Secretary to strike a coin, put any face value on it he or she chooses, a trillion, five trillion, a hundred trillion, seven hundred trillion, whatever you want. You stamp it with that number and you take it over to the Federal Reserve and you say, please deposit this in my account. And the Fed takes the coin and it sits on the asset uh, at the Federal Reserve on the asset side of its books. And the Fed changes the numbers in the Treasury account up to two trillion in this case. And so that's the legislation. And then she says, we're not going to issue any treasuries. So we'll have a balance. We'll deficit spend through this crisis, but we're not going to incre- we're not going to sell U.S. treasuries and we're not going to add to the debt. And I think the the thinking is that it will just help keep people keep calm. Yeah, I just um, I'll post a, a link to this also on the on the podcast uh, platform here. People want to uh, look at this because it's it's so refreshing, especially and it's and, you know, to, to be t- even trying to even think this out during what we're all facing right now. I mean, this is this is life right now is unlike anything that we have seen uh, in any of our lifetimes. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, and I think probably part of what's going on here is that she just wants to make it visibly apparent to everyone that the money is there, that we don't have to wonder and ask this question in perpetuity. How are we going to pay for it? Where will the money come from? This is just, you know, a, a quick way to change the numbers up in the treasury's account and to be able to point to it and say, okay, now there, there are the funds, you can see them. So we don't have to have this conversation about how we're going to pay for this. I just made the deposit. Let's get to work. Yeah. I think it's just, I, again, I just read it before, uh, before we, we turn the microphones on here and I just thought, wow, this is, uh, this is really something. Um, uh, so before we go here, I just want to talk about, you've got this book, I think you mentioned that, that's coming up. Uh, when is it publishing? It's publishing in, is it June? June 9th. June, oh, June 9th. You even know the date. Does Does anything ever matter anymore, though? Are there dates to anything for the rest of 2020? I mean, can anybody? I saying, every day I say to my husband, is it Monday 
because it went, I don't even know, you know, every day is the same in some sense now. Yeah, it does feel like that, doesn't it? And, um, but the book is called the, De- the deficit myth, uh, modern monetary theory and the birth of the people's economy. So, so this book, um, which I have not read, um, but, uh, I assume that you explain these things to people so that when, when they, when they hear the sort of false question, the fake debate of well, how are you going to pay for that? What do you mean? Green new deal? What do you mean? Medicare for all? We don't have the money for that. Um, that, that there's a, there's the right way to look at this instead of, instead of this convoluted fear inducing, they're going to take your private health insurance away. You know, all of that stuff, um, that it just, it just, it just drives me crazy. And I feel so bad that people are just kind of hoodwinked by it because on some level it makes some kind of sense, but I, but the truth is um, that you're just being lied to. That's right. I, I wrote it to empower people because, you know, people need a better understanding of this stuff. And there are just not many voices out there trying to really level with people and, and talk them through how this stuff works. So I tried to do this in the book in a way that is really highly accessible, free of academic jargon. There are no graphs in the book. There's not a chart. There are no graphs. There's no, you know, I, I kept it just really, really simple. And there's a whole chapter on Social Security. You know, you hear this over and over again, entitlements, the crisis driving our long-term debt crisis. I mean, I just debunk, I hope, um, successfully, all of these myths that we hear about the national debt and entitlements and trade deficits and the, and the budget deficit and try to empower people so that, you know, when, you, when you're member of Congress comes home to their district and you show up at a, at a town hall event or whatever, and you start banging your fist and saying, why aren't we doing this? And why aren't we doing that? And why aren't we solving this problem? And they turn to you and say, listen, I think I'm with you. I, I've, I'm, I care about those things too, but you know, we got this $23 trillion debt or we got this trillion dollar deficit and we just don't have the money. I want people in that room to be empowered, to stand up and push back and right. say, you're wrong. I know better. I know right. better. Wow. Well, this sounds great that just to have that ammunition, just to have that explanation, um, you know, when this book comes out, I'm, I'm sorry, it's got to come out during a time when you're probably not going to be able to go on a book tour, or, you know, but, but you can come on, you know, podcasts like this, you can go on TV, hopefully you'll be able to get this, uh, to get this out there. Do you have a publisher? It's our, I'm sure the book's already printed by now. Um, yeah. I think, well, I think it's being printed as we speak, but yes, it's uh, public affairs is publishing the book. Uh, oh, okay. So that's a good publisher. So you're, so, so you, so hopefully this book will get out and, and, you know, I didn't mention at the beginning, but yeah, you worked for the, uh, the, uh, the Senate budget committee on the democratic side. Uh, was it during the Obama years or, um, um, yeah, it was, uh, I, let's see, I took the job at the end of 2014. So 15 and part of 16. And I was the chief economist for the Democrats on the Senate budget committee. Senator Sanders was ranking member. So he hired me, uh, into that job. Hmm. Well, I think, I think a lot of the ideas, uh, that Bernie has proposed and, and a lot of what you've said, um, has really helped. Um, people have some hope that it's not just some 
theory or some idea that's just floating out there, but it's, that's a practical thing and that. And, and so that when we try to talk about the things that we need, Medicare for all, um, uh, tuition, free college daycare, I mean, just go down the list. Um, all of this is possible. It's, it's not pie in the sky. Um, it's not, nobody's thinking of paying with it with, for it with monopoly money. Um, and it's been very hard for our side. It's a very hard for, you know, whatever our side is, whatever that means. I mean, even last week when Nancy uh, was talking about the means testing, like maybe not, uh, you know, some of the Democrats or some, certainly the Republicans were like, no, they don't like the idea of giving everybody a check. It should, it should be a means test, you know, it's such a, I even, even, uh, one of the moderators are today on CNN when they were talking about it. And he said, well, I don't, I don't need the, I don't need the thousand dollar check. I make a lot of money here at CNN. And it's like, no, you're missing the point. It's, it's, it's why, it's why you wouldn't say to the public schools that maybe your kid's going to, uh, well, I, I don't need a free public school. I can pay for this. You don't walk into the library and go, I don't need the, I don't need a free library. I should be paying for this. You already, you already, yes, you should be paying for it. And hopefully we're taxing you. If you're making a lot of money at CNN, we're taxing you to pay for that library and that public school. But there's a reason why we, you don't want to create a two tier system where those who have to pay for these things that we have decided long ago are human right. And um, it just, it seems that it's very hard to get this across. And when you hear Democrats repeating this kind of thinking, it's like, oh no, don't, 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 don't go there. It's, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, this, this means testing stuff is slippery slope. Um, and the Democrats want to, you know, try to draw arbitrary lines and come up with some, you know, 85,000. Well, if you make more than eight, and the Republicans too, you know? And I said to my husband, so they're telling people today, I'm watching CNN, and they say, should you take your child or should you go to the dentist if you have an appointment? Should you go if you have, you're supposed to have an uh, eye appointment or whatever? They said, no, don't go. So now your kid's got braces. I got a kid with braces. You know, she had an appointment. We missed it. But what happens to the dental hygienist? I mean, these are higher salaried people, right? But they have a mortgage. Sure. Payment. They have, Lord knows, they probably have student loan debt from going through med school or dental school or whatever the case may be. So we're going to say, oh, well, we carve them out. We're not going to worry about them because they had, they're living pretty close to paycheck to paycheck. I mean, you drop them completely out of this, you carve them out, and you're going to have real strain on families. They don't have three or six or 12 months of savings set aside. They're, they can't weather that. The way we have set up our American economy. Um, to have these winners and losers, to have people struggling to get by from week to week, to have this the, the sense of fear and anxiety, uh, that statistic about, you know, 40, 50% of the country doesn't have $500 to their name if they had an emergency and they needed cash. They don't have the availability to that. That, that it's, people are so ratcheted. They're so ratcheted with, with this pressure and um, to, ha to, to place a, pa a pandemic to, on top of this, on top of everybody, the burden, the people listening to this right now, today, listen to us talking about this, they've got to 
not only do they got to hire, I know because I've heard from so many of them this week, they, they can't, they can't carry this burden. They can't get through it. The level of despair and depression, you know, it was already bad enough just trying to hopefully we can get through this year and, and be done with Trump. But that was enough already to create this sense of, of anxiety, but that, that we have a pandemic on top of this. And because of the pandemic, we now have an economic crash on top of it. It's Stephanie, it's, it's too much. It's too much. And I don't know what to say to people. I don't know. You know, I try to tell them the pandemic will be over. 80% of us who get this virus are going to be just fine. We're going to have a bad cold. That's it. You know, um, I'm not trying to, you know, everybody who listens to me know I'm not trying to sugarcoat anything because I've been very clear about how many people are going to die as a result of the inaction um, from the White House for the last two plus months. Um, people, you know, even Bernie would say, you know, it's like one of his first lines whenever you hear him speak that we have to remove the most dangerous president. He used to say in, in modern history, he's dropped, he's dropped the modern part. It's now clear. This is the most dangerous president. But, you know, and, 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 you know, we would point out how dangerous he is and the things that he's done. You know, if, if people knew the half of what he has done to gut the EPA, what in terms of the dangers that we're in because of just that alone, there's so many things, though, um, that we just don't even have the time to get into. But um, the but now he really is the most dangerous literally people are going to die as a result of this. So I'm, I'm just, before we leave, I just, I don't know what you have said to people or what you would say to people, but this is a heavy, heavy burden to carry right now. And yet, and yet if we don't, if we are paralyzed and we don't move, if we don't, make that call to the Senate switchboard today. If we just allow it to unfold the consequences after the pandemic, and there will be an after, it's not going to kill everybody. It's going to kill a lot of people, but it's not going to kill everybody. Uh, we're going to be here and, and we're going to be in a much, much worse situation. And, um, I mean, people must be asking you this. Your students must be asking you this. What, what, help me out here. How do I, how do I get through this? Because I don't know how much more people can take. It's the scariest moment in my lifetime, unquestionably. Um, the only thing that I can try to do is, you know, I had a piece run in the New York Times this morning. And again, it's just to the extent that I can offer something that has a calming effect. And for me, in my area of expertise, it's to say, don't let funding ever cause us to do what must be done to help people, to make them whole, to keep them whole through this crisis. The money can always be there. The last thing I can put up with is having the conversation turn to the price tag is too much, the deficit, the government can't afford. We have to, all of that has to be swept aside. We cannot let that interfere 
with the legislative process, with getting the dollars where they need to go, and with making it clear that the federal government stands prepared to do whatever it takes, steadfast commitment through this crisis, that they're not going to do a little and then pull back, that they're going to stand here, whatever it takes needs to be the message again and again, I think is the most reassuring thing that we can hear from lawmakers right now is that they're going to, they're not going to let anything prevent them from using the full force of the public purse, because that's why it exists. It exists for the public and Congress can make it clear and they can alleviate some of the anxiety that people are feeling in terms of just their personal finances. Am I going to be okay? Am I going to be able to pay the rent? Am I going to be able to get groceries? Am I going to be able to take care of myself and come out of this on the other end? And, and for me, that's what I'm hoping um, Congress is going to do is to step up and use the full force of the public purse to protect the American people through this crisis. They won't do that if we don't force them to do it. You know, I mean, part and, of and, and, no, they won't. And so it's really important that enough of us believe and understand, even if we don't fully understand that we believe that they have the power to do what must be done and to remain committed through the entirety of this crisis. Where is FDR when you need him? Yeah. Wow. Franklin yeah. Roosevelt. We don't have a visionary. I mean, at least not in the not in the seat that matters most. Um, right, but that's he controls it all right now, Trump. He, he it's you know when when the investigations are done after this is all over, when they're when they try to answer the question why did nothing happen for two months, mm-hmm. you know one of the things that's been going on is he's been trying to figure out. What kind of money can he make off it? His family make off it, his donors, his supporters, his cronies, you know, all the, yeah, the the contracts that needed to go out to get those face masks to the contracts that need to go out to get, to get those ventilators, to build those hospital beds, all the things that needed to happen, um, got held up, got slowed down on some level because there was like, what's in it for us? Who can we give this to? You know, that's what we're, I'm telling you, I already know right now when the investigation is done, this will be a piece of it. It won't be the whole thing, but it's going to be a piece of it. And, um, um, I don't know. I don't know. <sighs> the Supermax prison in Florence, Colorado might be a good place for this whole thing to end up. But for right now, um, I don't want people to give up. I don't want people who are listening to this to to think that we're completely helpless here because of who's sitting in the white house who's sitting in the united states senate um they need to know that there will be hell to pay hell to pay if in these next 24 hours and in these days and weeks ahead if they don't do their job to do what the right thing is for the american people the american worker um i don't know what can I sound more threatening than that? I'm a nonviolent person, so I hope that's this is all taken in the right way. But um, but I am a citizen of this damn country, and I'll I'll you know I will not sit by 
And um, I hope the people listening to this will join me and not sit by either. So, Stephanie, you've given us a lot of great information here today. Um, I encourage people to buy your book when it comes out. I will buy it. And, um, you know, keep doing what you're doing to inform us and educate us. Um, it, it means, it means a lot. Well, no, it's, you know, <clears throat> I was getting ready for this podcast today and I, I, uh, was watching, um, governor Cuomo and he, um, he wanted to give out some good news. He wanted to announce that, um, um, that Goldman Sachs, um, has decided to give the face masks that they have in their storage facility. 100,000 face masks that Goldman Sachs is donating to the state of New York. And, you know, my first thought was, what is Goldman Sachs doing with 100,000 face masks, face masks in the closet? What, what world do we live in? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, you don't have to answer that question. I'm just like, I wouldn't have an answer. There's no answer to this. It's no. madness. Yeah. It's madness. Thank you, Stephanie Kelton, for um, being part of my Rumble podcast uh, today. Um, keep up the good work. And, um, and to everybody listening, um, you know what you have to do. Uh, this has been Rumble with Michael Moore. And um, we'll talk to you again, hopefully, tomorrow.